Christmas is a time of movies. <clears throat> and we're going to talk about that, but I have to interrupt this. Um, we have a lot of visitors here today. And you know how you see people out of context and you can't think, who is that? And seated in the second row over here are Joe and Nancy Schmidt and their, some of their family. And he's the preacher at my home church in Kewan, Illinois. Welcome. The funny story is I did this to him a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> and the reason I want to mention it is partially a testimony to the church. Because a couple weeks ago I was visiting a couple cousins and stayed in Kiwani to go to my home church. And it's been a long time since I've been there. And as I went to getting ready to go to church, I, sorry, <clears throat> I was realizing uh, whatever I do for Jesus, some of that was the foundation I received at First Christian Church. And I can still picture some of those Sunday school teachers who taught us and we made those crafts and VBS and all those parents who made sure we got to church camp and all of those things that formed who I am today. And it was really a church a lot like this. And I could link some of your names with some of the people at First Christian Church in Kiwani 50, 60 years ago. And I say that today not just to welcome Joe and Nancy, but what we do at the church, it matters. Because we're forming lives, we're forming our own lives, but we're forming the lives of our children. As they go to Rock Solid, as we provide jam, as we have a Christmas program. And it won't be Broadway up here. But it's going to be a great program. And you know who will be blessed above all else? The kids up here. Who will carry memories from the rehearsals and the eating together in the cafe before the rehearsals and that night. And who knows what God will do through them in 20, 30 years. And so what we do as a church, it does matter. And we may, some of us, most of those people I identified, it was really scary. I thought I'd see a lot of people. I think I recognized five people, a lot of whom that's all that were left. But their influence carried on. So welcome. You didn't want all that, but uh, welcome. Now back to Flixmas. This is our sermon series, partially because... We like movies at Christmas, don't we? Most of us do. There's a few Grinches I've run into. A few crept into my family. But we love movies in general. And I would suspect that most of us have our favorite Christmas movies. They're not all the same, but we have our favorite Christmas movies. We, we do two movie nights every December. White Christmas and the musical Scrooge. Guaranteed, those two nights happen. Part of it is because of the power of movies and what they say to us. And so this, this uh, December, we're going to look at five Christmas movies. 
and each week we'll have a different movie, and not because they're strong Christian movies, um, not by a long shot, but because each of those movies brings into focus some theme, some struggle, some issue that we wrestle with and that God was coming in Jesus to deal with that very issue, to address that need, to fix what was broken, to help us understand the why, not the what, but the why of Christmas. And so we're going to do Flixmas this December. And there's a list on the uh, information desk if you want to see what movies are coming up. The first one we're going to look at is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And I need to begin with an apology, okay? First of all, those of you who've seen it should be sitting there saying, what is he doing? And those of you who've not seen it, do not go watch it. I don't want to be responsible for you watching that movie. And I know some of you, it's your favorite Christmas movie. Why are we doing this movie? Because as goofy as the movie may be, unfortunately, sometimes it's too close to reality. And while it may hurt a little bit and we may cringe a little bit, it does raise an important issue. And that is Christmas is a time for families. We gather together as families. We drive long distances to be with families. We work hard for days to prepare a feast for families to get together. And we do all kinds of funny family traditions. The problem is families can also be our greatest stress at the holiday. Carol Levin was running an online poll they were running, I think it was on Wednesday, they had five or six options. Why are you most stressed as we go into Thanksgiving? More than all the others combined, families was the number one source of stress. Because sometimes families are our greatest source of pain, aren't they? They're places of conflict. They're places where we feel unloved, unappreciated, isolated, even alone in our families. And that's what is depicted in Christmas Vacation. Charlie Griswold, bless his heart. Teresa, you're going to have to do this today. He wants a perfect Christmas for his family. And he will go to any length to help that perfect Christmas happen. He wants everything just right. He's a little bit excessive himself to help that happen. But he wants his family to have a great time together. The problem is his family. And some of his relatives show up. And that family that is around Charlie at Christmas is far from perfect. Both sets of parents come and they don't like anybody else in the family except their own child. Crazy cousin Eddie shows up with his beat-up RV, emptying the sewer in the gutter, and etc. 
And Charlie is just off the charts. And even Uncle Lewis and Aunt Bethany show up and they're sort of half crazy. And for the Griswolds, Christmas ends up being anything but perfect. Because of family. And I think one of the reasons that movie has lasted so long is the truth is every one of us has a family. Now, our families may not be like the Griswolds, but the reality is that none of our families are perfect. And we all have some crazy cousins and some people who drive us over the edges. Sometimes we don't want to talk about our families. We don't want a reality TV show to come into our homes for Thanksgiving or Christmas because of what people might see on the TV. And part of the problem is our families never leave us. We may leave them. We may even walk away from them. But we cannot escape our families. They are a part of who we are, good or bad. We can't escape them. And part of why we're talking about it today is because our families don't just affect us and how we feel about ourselves, how we see life. Our families even affect how we see God. And how we think God sees us. I have an interesting question. Would God invite your family to his house for Christmas? A lot of us might say, no way. Some of us might say, well, if my family's going, I don't want to be there. Because of what might happen. But you know what? You might not want your family to go to God's house for Christmas, but I want to tell you something. I think God would want them there. I think God might surprise you. Whatever your family is like, I think God might surprise you. Because God is more patient and understanding of people and our brokenness and our struggles and yes, even the baggage we carry, I think God is more understanding of that than we are. And I think that's one of the messages of Christmas. And it's the message of Christmas that I want us to look at today. And I want to do that by looking at the family that God picked for Jesus. Now remember, God is God. He can do anything. So God could have had Jesus come to earth by a whole bunch of different families. He could have had him come to earth without a family in some way. But he didn't. He chose one particular family and had Jesus be born in that family. With all that that meant for Jesus, but all that shows us in the family that God chose to put Jesus in. Matthew 1 has the genealogy, the ancestry chart, ancestry.com, genealogy, Matthew 1 is that for Jesus. And I want us to look at this first 16 verses of Matthew 1, because in that genealogy, there are some fascinating things we learn about Jesus' family. And in learning about Jesus' family, we learn some things about God and the kinds of families God is willing to work with, the kinds of people God is willing to work with. 
Now, most of us, if we talk about our families, we like to leave out a few people, don't we? We sort of skip over them. I, I have an aunt that way. Nobody ever talked about this aunt. She just walked to a different drummer, and it's, well, I won't even go into Aunt D. But nobody talked much about Aunt D. Every family has some of those people. You'd think you'd sort of skip over them. And, and Matthew does not, one of the things you need to know, Matthew does not say, I am listing every single relative of Jesus. He is selective. He picks out the relatives to give this lineage, to give this line, and that we catch the key people. And the reason I want you to notice that is because if he is being selective, why would he include the people he does? Because we're not going to look at four people today most families would skip over. And yet, Matthew puts them in and makes sure we see their names. I think there is a point that God is trying to make for us. And that God is willing and wants to work with and matter, their lives matter to him, a variety of people, some of whom we would overlook. Some of whom you may be sitting there saying, that's me. And you may think God isn't interested in you, and you're wrong. And I hope you'll see that today. So among Jesus' most interesting ancestors, we want to look first of all at Tamar. I want to read, the, uh, read along with me verses 2, two and 3. He starts, Jesus, uh, Abraham was the beginning, the father of the Jewish nation, so we've got to start at the beginning. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. And as you will see throughout these verses, we'll come back and read some more, we primarily are getting the fathers. The ancestry that Matthew was tracing was through the men. Which makes it even more interesting when Matthew chooses to mention one of the mothers, one of the women, because there's very few of them he chooses to mention. And one of them was Tamar. Tamar was not the shining star of the lineage of Jesus. In fact, I'm sure there were some Jews who read this that said, did he just say Tamar? Did he really mention Tamar? And he didn't mention Rachel, Sarah, these stellar women. Tamar was a childless widow. And her family, her relatives, were not taking care of her because part of taking care of her was to provide her a new husband so she could have children. Because that was the only way women could survive in the ancient world. Their children took care of them, except Tamar had none. And her father-in-law would not do his duty, so Tamar was forced to disguise herself with a prostitute, as a prostitute and sleep with her father-in-law to get pregnant and have a child. Now, most of us wouldn't sit around at Thanksgiving and tell that story in the family, would we? And yet, here is Matthew putting Tamar in the list of Jesus' ancestors. And I don't think it was by accident. Remember, 
our firm conviction is that the Bible was written not ultimately by Matthew or any of the other authors, but by God. So I believe it was God himself who was saying, Matthew, make sure you include Tamar. And maybe even Matthew scratched his head a little bit at that, but said, okay, God. Because God wants us to understand that there may be Tamars, there may be mistakes in life, there may be things that are not fair, that are not right, but that doesn't mean God is done with us. That doesn't mean God is going to ignore us. He still wants to use us as he used Tamar. He doesn't overlook us. Well, let's go back and read verses 4 and 5 because we run across two more women. The list of men continues. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And in that paragraph, we read of two more interesting women. One is Rahab. Remember Rahab? What was her career? She was a prostitute. And in fact, as the spies from Israel were coming to spy out Jericho, remember, and they were afraid of getting caught, where did they go hide? We don't even like to say this word, but in the brothel that Rahab ran. And now, what is she? One of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. Isn't God teaching us something about him here? Now, it's not that Rahab continued as a prostitute. God turned her life around, and she became a matriarch in this family. But I wonder if everybody forgot her beginnings. I doubt if she did. And I think she would be the first one to talk about this God who still loved her, despite what she had done. And I think that's one of the messages God wants us to catch. Because for a lot of us, forgetting our histories is very hard to do, isn't it? Forgetting our own histories. Mistakes we've made. I was talking in Sunday school this morning. I've had people literally tell me, I can't come to church. God knows what I've done. And if I walked in the door, he'd strike me dead. They couldn't forget their history. And sometimes we're challenged because we can't forget somebody else's history. And we always look at them and think about them and remember who they were, what they did, etc. And yet here in Jesus' lineage, we run across Rahab, the prostitute. And God wasn't done with her. God didn't write her off. In fact, she became part of the family that Jesus came to. And a couple generations after her, we run across Ruth. Ruth wasn't even Jewish. In fact, Jew, Ruth was the worst of the worst. She was a Moabite. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us, 
But for the Jews, the Moabites were their worst nightmare, their worst enemy. If the Jews, as they came in and conquered ancient Israel, if there was anybody they hated above all else, it was the Moabites. So for whoever that might be for you today, I don't know. I hate to even suggest ethnic groups or nationalities, but we all tend to have those groups of folks that just, we hope they don't move in next door. And if our daughter or son came home and said they were dating one, we would say, whoa. And here is Ruth, a Moabite, who has been taken into this Jewish family and becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus. Another person that we might write off, but God doesn't. I want to do one more, and that's in verse 6. From what Matthew says, we don't even know her name. We do, but not from Matthew. And Jesse, the father of King David, now that's the highlight for the Jews. King David was their greatest leader. History built up to David, and it sort of went downhill after David. David was the ultimate. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, I, I just think this is fascinating. Matthew says, I don't want you to miss the point I'm making here, so I'm not even going to call her Bathsheba. I'm going to call her by who she was, the wife of Uriah. Now, if you're not familiar with biblical history, what that is in reference to is King David, at a great point in his life, was married, and Bathsheba was married to Uriah, and he was one of David's great generals. And he was off fighting a war for David while David sat in his palace. And one night in the ancient Israel, in that hot climate, roofs of houses were actually sort of an additional room, a deck, whatever you want to call it. And in the cool of the night, Bathsheba was taking a bath on her roof. Nobody could see that except if you were the king up in the palace on the highest part of the city. And to make a long story short, David saw Bathsheba was taken by her and then took her, went to bed with her, and when that was becoming public, orchestrated Uriah being killed in the war so that he could have Bathsheba. David is Abraham Lincoln and George Washington rolled together. And if there was any story in David's life that all of the Jews would just like to forget and go past and have deleted and Photoshop it out, it would be Bathsheba's picture. Because it reminded them of David's fall, his huge mistake. This is way beyond Watergate. This is way beyond any kind of controversy in politics. He had taken another man's wife and had him killed for her. And Matthew doesn't want us to miss that point because he doesn't introduce her as Bathsheba. He introduces her as the wife of Uriah. And yet, what are we talking about? 
we are talking about the genealogy of the Messiah. God come to earth. And what we're seeing is that God came to earth in a family like our families. Families that aren't perfect. Families that have people in them that it's like, oh, let's skip over that generation. But you see, the thing I wanted us to capture today, and, and we could do more. We could talk about Mary and Joseph. And from the village of Nazareth's perspective, Mary was pregnant before they got married. And the fact that she said God did this probably did not help her standing a lot in the village of Nazareth. Because you and I both know most of them were saying, oh yeah, right, sure. You can't even stand up and admit what you did. And I don't know if you catch it, but later in the Gospels, Jesus is teaching and his siblings come and try and forcibly take him home because they're convinced that Jesus has sort of lost it. He's cuckoo. He thinks he's the Messiah. Jesus had all kinds of sibling issues, huh? I mean, that would be pretty humbling. Jesus, your family's here. They think you're crazy. They want to take you home. Now, to their credit, we know from the book of Acts, they all came to believe in Jesus. But they didn't start there. He had a family, and we have a family. And as we enter this holiday season, there is a message that I think God wants us to capture, and I don't think the genealogy of Matthew 1 is an accident. God is not held back by ordinary families who've made mistakes, who aren't 100% healthy, and I know we are bothered by our families at times, especially at the holiday season. But please understand, God has not written off you or your family. And Jesus can redeem our families just like he redeemed Matthew's family that we read about in Matthew 1. That's why Jesus came, for broken people and broken families to help us find wholeness. That is part of the good news. And I think God wanted us to see that very clearly in the first chapter, in the first book of the entire New Testament. This honest look at Jesus' own family through Matthew. And yet look what God would do with that family. We have no beginning of a hint of what God can do with our families and our lives if we will give our families, ourselves, to this Jesus who will be born at Christmas and let this Jesus come in and redeem, give new life to our families. That is part of the good news of Christmas pray Father thank you for the ancestors of Jesus you had Matthew list for us and the point you were trying to make by the people that you included 
what it teaches us about you and about Jesus. And your love and your grace and your forgiveness and your patience when we are broken, flawed humans. But also your power and the power of Jesus to take broken families and broken people and use us in spite of ourselves in amazing ways. May this message of Christmas give us hope. If we had a painful week because of our family this Thanksgiving, may it give us hope as we feel ourselves getting stressed about Christmas and families. May it give us a new perspective of how you see our families and what Jesus can do to change us. I pray this in his name. Amen.